0: All right, you hear that psalm and you think right away, wow, what's going to come next, right? It could be a passive-aggressive pastor who this week really wants to call the church to confession because there's something you've done that needs to be called out. He wouldn't. Or it's something I've done that I have to uh, confess admit. Now, let me tell you, just to uh, relieve your fears here just for a second as we get started, is these are picked months in advance, <laughs> so we knew this was coming, uh, and it was nothing that happened months ago. But this is a very popular psalm, right? You've heard this one before. You've probably spoken this one. But there's a there's a story that lies behind this particular psalm, and and I think many of you know the story. But just in case you don't know it, in First Samuel chapter 13, in verse 14, Israel's king at the time learns that he's going to be the last in his family line to rule on the throne. Now, I bet you didn't think that's the story I was gonna start with, right? But King Saul at the time learns that his dynasty is coming to an end with him. His son, Jonathan, is not going to be on that throne. Instead, God is going to give it to another, one who's described as a man after God's own heart. You've heard that before, right? Of course, this is a new dynasty that will be established under who will become the famed King David, and so, it begins Apostle paul fills in this idea of what it means to be uh, a man or a person after god's own own heart when he's telling the audience at the synagogue in the first century and we read this in acts chapter 13 he states that david will carry out all my wishes that that's what god's understanding of when he says a man of his own heart that david's going to be this one's going to carry out god's wishes of course this picture here for us is one who is a trustworthy servant so this particular regent this king is one who's trustworthy and will be obedient to all of God's instruction. And so in seeing that, we know that's a clear distinction between David's administration and the previous administration. Because in 1 Samuel 13, the previous administration is described as being one that did not keep the commandments of the Lord your God. And so this new administration is gonna be different. It's hopeful, right? Remember those Obama posters with hope? There was David posters that had hope on them, right? It's going to be a different administration. Something new is coming. But then comes 2 Samuel, right? We have 1 Samuel. Then comes 2 Samuel. And particularly 2 Samuel or chapter 11. And a surprising turn happens. And here's the story that you probably know. King David, the man after God's own heart, is at home. And he's walking around the rooftop of his house. And as he's walking around that mansion uh, and walking on that rooftop, he sees over in the distance somewhere else. He sees a woman bathing, and the text says that she was beautiful, which tells us right away that there's an attraction there, that King David has some kind of attraction uh, to this woman. So he sends someone to go find out, who is that? Who is that person? Let me go send someone. We call these like the royal wingmen, but these would be that go out. Who is this person? I must know. And he finds out in those folks going out what her name is. He finds out her family, who her father's household is, And then he finds out something that he really should know. She's married and not to him. She's married to someone else. David, of course, hears all that news and he sends more messengers. This time, these messengers are to go and to bring her back to him. And when she comes back, they sleep together. And we see that in verse four of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. She, of course, becomes pregnant in this encounter and David attempts to cover it up right he tries to cover it up first thing he tries to do is is have her husband come back into town from his service in the military if Uriah could come back into town and perhaps while he's there him and his wife get together and then we say oh she's pregnant because of him but Uriah doesn't do that he just determines that because his military unit is not uh, able to come home he's not gonna go home and so he doesn't go back to his house well, that plan gets thwarted. So David comes up with another one to cover it up. And this time what he does, he orders the superiors of Uriah to put him in a position where he most certainly will be struck down in battle and that he'll be killed. He's trying to, in a sneaky way, of course, conceal what he's trying to do in this whole thing is to cover it up. If that sounds entirely evil, and if all that sounds super shady to you, you're not alone. All right. You're not alone in this. We hear at the very end of that chapter, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, we're not gonna go through a Hebrew lesson here in the next couple minutes, but I'm gonna give you just a, a real short Cliff Notes version here. The word translated displeased in our text. I went and looked it up in a bunch of different uses in the Old Testament, and whenever it shows up, it's never a hunky-dory, all right? Things aren't good when, it's, when that word is used. Things are displaced and out of place. Things are out of joint. This notion that David would do such a thing. This notion that this person who's chosen is chosen for a very particular role and described as a very particular kind of character would do these kind of major acts. Adultery and murder. Also joined with cover-ups and an abuse of power. To have all these things coming together in this one story, this one event is downright shocking. To pull this off, to do this kind of stuff, you've gotta have a particular kind of deception. You've gotta employ a particular kind of craftiness in order to get away with all these type of things. This is serpent stuff. You go back to Genesis chapter three, where we read about the serpent who's described as being crafty, or other translations would say cunning or shrewd. That's serpent kinds of stuff. And that craftiness back in Genesis 3 is used to turn the human family down a path that would lead to their ruin. But this capacity is not just serpent stuff. And we see that with David. We see that the word Hebrew word arum, which is used there to talk about crafty in Genesis 3, is a trait that the human figures long for. And actually the biblical writer in Genesis 3 is going to play with that and say that even though we might long for the a room, we instead end up with the A-Rome, a play on words which is the word for naked in our sense to be wise and crafty in our sense to deceive and even in that deception to cover things up we end up having our sins find us out and that's what happens with David in the very next chapter of 2 Samuel that this one who was so deceptive this one who tried to hide and cover up this abuse Is found out when a prophet named Nathan shows up. David's exposed, his sins laid before him, his treachery is made known. And the man after God's own heart is described in that chapter with three damning conclusions. He despised the word of the Lord, he did evil in the sight of God, and he ultimately despised God in his actions. He was caught caught in the act, a long story of multiple sins all tied around the same encounter that spun out of control. I think we know what that feeling of being caught is like. I think we all have a story in our lives where we've been found out or exposed or caught. I have a lot of them, so I had to pick one. (laughs) I was in sixth grade, and I got voted into student council. It was crazy. I ran this campaign that was outrageously expensive for a sixth grader. I made so many posters, it was ridiculous, for one homeroom. If you could just full circle the homeroom was posters for my election. I was going to win. I began lobbying people for their vote. Favors, all kinds of stuff being offered, like, yeah, I'll support chocolate milk every day at lunch and stuff like that, sixth grade stuff. And I won, it was a landslide. And I, I served well, I was on all kinds of student leadership initiatives, and that was the start and the end of my political career. But the next year, a friend of mine, maybe more of an acquaintance in the neighborhood, invited me to go fire bottle rockets off after school at the local elementary school, my elementary school. And so I said, sure, that sounds fun. And so seventh grade Jimmy went with this guy and we were launching off bottle rockets. I remember we got confronted by a member of the staff of the school. They came walking out to the field with a very determined walk coming straight for us. And we thought, "Uh uh-oh, now we're in trouble. But the staff person who came was my homeroom teacher from the previous year when I was on student council. And I remember he looked at the two of us and he looked at me and he said, Jimmy, I'm really disappointed in you. You know how that feels when someone says that to you? It just wrecks you, absolutely wrecked. He didn't say anything to the other guy, so his reputation preceded him. But how stinging was that sense of disappointment that rang out in being caught? I went away that day with a deep sense of of regret for what I had done and it was the last time I was shooting bottle rockets at a school. Well, Ronald Youngblood, a commentator, observes this about sin. He says, sin is comprehensively viewed in the Old Testament as the deliberate act of veering off the road that God wants us to travel. And clearly David, King David, had veered off the course. And at this moment when David is confronted by Nathan the prophet, he can go a lot of different ways. The lying can continue, the cover-ups can continue. And we see that in our own day and age and perhaps even in our own heart, where we try to cover it up. We try to hide. We try to shelter ourselves or shield ourselves from the accusations, even though those accusations might be true. There's an old One Bad Pig song. You know the band One Bad Pig? Does anybody know the band One Bad Pig? One of their lines is your cruddy heart is full of sin. It's probably the most accurate thing they've said. It's a metal band, Christian metal band. So it's like, You're ready, I just listen. So it's something like that. But they are... Right. That was one of my favorite bands in high school, so you judge me as you will. But that line, that line in there is, is there's a real truth to that uh, for us, that the deception that lives in David here is part of our story as well. But David chooses a different course, and that's what our psalm is. It's a different course. And the psalm, as we read through it, when we hear it, we recognize that David, instead of covering things up now, goes right to the core of the matter and he confesses what has happened. He confesses that something has occurred, that bad behavior has been allowed to persist in his own life. And so the first thing he says, if we were put in our own, our own language, is David admits that he's guilty as charged. That's what the psalm tells us right away. He owns his bad behavior. He confesses his evil acts. He says in uh, verse 3, as he tells his story, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And of course, the underlying text here, if you were to go back into the Hebrew, there's an additional pronoun, a personal pronoun here. He puts the uh, I twice in that. And what he's doing is giving emphasis to the fact that he has indeed done these things. He is absolutely guilty as charged. And of course, for us, that's an important thing in our own confession if we're going to set off to live authentic and honest lives if we're going to open ourselves to the ability to be healed and to have light shed onto dark places in our hearts we have to come clean we have to come with an honest and open sense we have to recognize ourselves as guilty as charged another commentator Marvin Tate makes this keen observation here he says The courage to deal impartially with oneself is a necessary characteristic of true confession. And so for us to see that, that we have to deal impartially with ourselves, we can't let ourselves off the hook. We have to be open and honest and not look to spin out of control. How often do we encounter, right, in our culture, in our own lives, these kind of half confessions, these sort of apologies? These ones that look to justify all kinds of things and to soften the blow and say, well, I did this wrong, but not everything. Many of us have done that, right? We try we try to soften what has actually happened. David models something different. Again, a coming clean in total. The second thing that he does is we hear this in, in our culture as well. And we might even say this ourselves. He doesn't go down the route that says, my bad. right? He doesn't do that. There's a recognition here that there's something more going on here in the sin and the the bad behavior that he does. Just as we might in our own day have half confessions, sometimes we're apt to forego or forget that our bad behavior actually affects other people. That there's a ripple effect in our lives that when we cheat and steal and lie and when we, we abuse power and we do all these different things, that it's actually affecting other people. And we're quick to forget that. We sometimes think uh, within our I talk about ourselves that we're the only subject that exists in the world. And so, eh, my bad, I'm off the hook, you know, extend grace accordingly and I'm, I'm good to go. But David doesn't do that in his confession. He in fact recognizes in one very important line, he talks about the offense here is against God. He concludes then, since it is an offense that's outside just his own hurt and his own bad behavior, that in the second part of verse four, God is justified in God's sentence and blameless when God passes judgment. And that's a full recognition that his sins are not isolated within his own self, but there's an effect on God and those around him. him. You'll notice that the Psalm itself ends, it's a personal, very personal Psalm all throughout, but it ends the last two verses with a sense of national effect. There's a sense that there's a healing that comes to the nation because of the confession that's been put forward and the mercy that God extends. But confession here for us taps into a truth that is greater than simply being honest and authentic with your life. It taps into a greater truth for us and one that we shouldn't too quickly overlook. In fact, if we were to overlook it, we would miss such a great salvation. And so good news that we hear in this text, and one that I read in a couple Psychology Today articles this past week that talked about the health and the well-being that comes to those who live a life of confession. We see that even in our culture, little, little peaks that sneak peeks to the gospel there. But in David, he's right in identifying the context in which confession can truly be made. And he does that right from the outset of the psalm. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The real power and effect of confession, the really uh, rooting out that sense of hurt and the darkness that might lie within, it's not not found in a place isolated in self-preservation. It's not a sense that I just come clean and because I'm honest, virtue itself allows me to be a better person going forward but rather the cover-ups and all the darkness and deep uh, struggles, the, the, the evil and all the things that exist inside our souls and our hearts, those things are truly rooted out by God's mercy, that God has a transforming effect on our lives and reaches into those places, reaches into those spaces of our hearts, those ones that are shaded and that we try to hide, that God can reach into those corners and that it's God's own mercy which is offered in abundance to come and transform you and change you to make you new and different not to cover up but to root out that sin the salvation of the unfaithful one unfaithful David unfaithful me that salvation is not found in my action but it's found in the faithful one who's ever faithful the one who's Covenant faithfulness is expressed here in this Psalm, but also is expressed in the New Testament when we read that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cover to cover, the scriptures hold forth the truth that God's salvation, God's mercy is what invites us to true confession and which is the power that comes with confession to free us to a new kind of life. This all follows, of course, the trajectory of the psalm. And as we read the psalm, it's one that moves from pleading to an assurance, pleading for salvation, to be assured that that salvation will come, that God will bring it about. Now, Psalm 51, as I said, is a popular psalm. It's one that, uh, whether or not you had heard it before this morning, uh, if you've been around churches, you probably sung it. About 300 years ago, the famous hymn writer Isaac Watts the same Isaac Watts who wrote "When I Survey the Wondrous Cross" and "Joy to the World." Maybe you heard some of his hits. All right, that same Isaac Watts played with this psalm and, and set it to uh, music. We also have examples in our own age, right? We think about folks like Keith Green. That's probably a popular one. Uh, his own use of the song. John Michael Talbot uh, and others have done stuff with this psalm. Sons of Korah have done things with the song. So folks may all throughout the years have have played with this. So we may not have only heard this, we've probably sung it at some point, that we've sung these words and it's made its way into congregational singing all over the place. But in closing I want us to be invited to more than just singing a song. I want to invite you and I'm inviting myself in the same words to live a different kind of life. I live a life that not only sings these as kind of concert goers would or ones that might lightly dabble in the truths of God, but rather for us to live a life in which this song resonates the deep places of our hearts, where it becomes what I said at the outset of the series, it becomes direct speech from our own hearts. And so as we consider the benefit that confession provides for us, the so true salvation that is offered to each one of us, that clearly outweighs living a callous kind of life clearly outweighs the difficult and painful life the discontorted the wrecked life that comes when we don't confess the lives that we rot for ourselves that are literally lives of rot rot so instead as i close this morning i want to draw our attention again back to malcolm guide's words as he reflects on this song because he think i think he does a a beautiful job of painting a, a great picture for us of what this might look like for us in our own own lives he writes expose your darkness seeing your misery and the word there is uh, pulled from the title of an Italian uh, song his light will judge the judging heal your sin then bathe in sheer beauty as Allegri the one who wrote that song sounds out your penitence and let Christ clean your soul once more, erasing every stain, washing you thoroughly for he has seen. What you confess and what you hide again, he mends your broken bones and makes for you a clean heart, comes to comfort you again, comes with his Holy Spirit to renew, the spirit in you call you to sing of all your loving God has done for you. Friends, miss not the benefits of your loving creator, who has not only made you, has not only created you, but also sustained you, has not only given you life, but promises you new life, that we might live in true confession and all the while live in the midst of the one who offers us true mercy and grace. Maybe so in our generation and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us pray together.